Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello and welcome to Better at Work. This week, we have got the amazing Tessa West with us. Tessa is an associate professor of psychology at New York University, where she is a leading expert on interpersonal interactions and communication. She is published in the field of psychology's most prestigious journals, and she writes regularly about her research in the Wall Street Journal. And Tessa is also the author of one of my favorite books, Jerks at Work. You can see I've got lots of post-its here because... Uh, I'm taking all the tips I can on jerks at work from it. And I'm so delighted to have Tessa with us. Welcome, Tessa, to Better at Work. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk about jerks at work with you all. Well, I tell you, Tessa, your book is, I mean, certainly been a, a great guidebook uh, recently for me in dealing with jerks and challenging people at work. And what I love about your book is you've kind of taken all the science and kind of put it into a super digestible format for people. And I love the practical tips. And I have to say, I appreciate the humor as well, because some of this stuff uh, um, can be quite uh, heavy to deal with. So uh, I'm really excited for our listeners to hear more about managing those jerks. And, and I know you'll, you'll bring a lot of that to life for us today. I thought we'd start with, you know, you are a leading expert on interpersonal communications and interactions. How did this area interest you in the first place? Like, where did it all start for you, Tessa? <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, I've been studying awkward social interactions for a very long time. And, you know, I started doing this research when I was actually a freshman in college. And I, I find it fascinating to see all the ways in which people will take a really awkward social situation, like giving somebody negative feedback or even, you know, asking for a raise, you know, everything from, you know, how you tell someone that they're being inappropriate to, you know, how you try to get them to do a favor for you. It's just a fascinating topic to study and no one knows how to do it well. And one of the things I started doing very early in my career is studying people's physiology. And so what we would often see is that what went on in the body, so their stress response, their blood pressure, their heart rate, rarely matched up to how they were behaving. And sometimes we would see wow. that the more stressed they were physiologically, the more they smiled, the more they nodded their head the more positive the behavior. So they're actually kind of overcompensating for that anxiety by being kind of over the top to nice to people. And I think that's one of the reasons why we actually have communication difficulties in our interactions is we're not very honest with each other. You know, we, we kind of BS around the tough stuff because it's awkward and uncomfortable. And then at work, you get this weird work persona as well, which kind of adds to the whole mix. Yeah, people are really uncomfortable at work. They they don't know how to deal with issues like status. They don't know how to kind of climb up the ladder without being, you know, a kiss up, kick down or inappropriate in these kinds of ways. But I think on top of that, no one learns how to deal with difficult people at work. I mean, no. I certainly never took any training courses on it. 
Um, we wait until people really screw up and then they have to go through some kind of management training as a punishment for their bad behavior. It's a little like waiting for you to get in a car accident before you go to driving school, right? We would never do that. That's crazy. But we do it at work all the time. So we don't learn how to do these things and we can go 20, 30 years without really learning any strategies. So that's why, you know, I thought it'd be important to write about it. I could not agree more on that. And I'm really excited to explore that a little bit more with you because uh, I think we've got some great, great great examples that you can share and, and hopefully I can share some as well. But let's get into these archetypes that you've come up with, the difficult jerks, the difficult people and uh, and how I suppose what I really think our listeners will want to hear is how to get through with get through life with some of these people, um, because we've certainly all been there and had some of those jerks. So I know this, uh, Would you, I've heard you do this on other podcasts. Would you mind giving a very quick overview of the seven? And, and then I've got a few I'd love to go a little deeper on. Sure, sure. So the first four are coworkers that you deal with that are difficult. So the first one is the kiss up, kick downer. So this is that person who brings some kind of talent to work. The boss loves them. You sort of hate how well they're liked by the people in power, but they're really mean to everyone who works at the same level as them or anyone who's beneath them. They often get away with it because they're good at hiding it and covering it up when the boss is around. So people don't really see it. And because of that, it becomes kind of this conversation of, you against them when you do come to complain about them. Um, so they're kind of one of the more conniving types of jerks at work. Um, we also have the credit stealer. So this is the person who acts like your best friend, sometimes your boss. They, they, they make you feel very comfortable kind of just kind of working through the motions, working through the difficult aspects of coming up with a new idea. And then they steal all the credit for your best ideas and your hardest work. And they're smart about it. So sometimes they even grant you credit for things that you didn't even necessarily do just to look like they're on your side, that they're a team player. Um, then we have the bulldozer. So we all got very used to this person during the pandemic. They are the ones that took up our entire screen when they spoke. Uh, they, they cut everybody else off. They dominate conversations. But I think the scarier thing they do is they actually go behind the scenes to work up the power structure if they don't like the way things turned out. So I've recently dealt with a bulldozer who would question the process. He'd say things like, no one really knew what they were voting on and people didn't really have a chance to speak up. I really think we should redo the vote mm. just so he could kind of work his magic behind the scenes to get his way eventually. And, you know, you end up with very frustrated teams when you have these folks. Yeah. And then you have the free rider. So these folks are have all the charisma in the world. Everyone likes to hang out with them. They're fun. They know all the office gossip. Um, where I live in New York City, they can get all the dinner reservations at the new places that are very hard to get into. And that's important, too. It's also important. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why we keep them around. Um, they also take advantage of conscientious teams who will kind of pick up the slack for them. Uh, so they do, you know, things like the veneer of work and they also spread their work pretty thin so they get away with it. Um, and those are kind of the difficult coworkers that we work with. And then you have the bosses, of course. So we have the micromanager who most of us have dealt with at some point in our career. Um, they don't just pay attention to detail, but they pay attention to detail of everything no matter how important or irrelevant it is, it's always an emergency to kind of get things done for them because they're always kind of rushing around. They don't have a sense of timelines and they do it to everyone. They do it to the people who really actually need that kind of babysitting and the people that really don't. And so their strategy is just very exhausting. You feel like 
the more you work on something, the less you get done because they'll just kind of go back and, you know, undo it, make you redo it and so forth. Um, and then we have the kind of opposite side of that coin, which is the neglectful boss. So this person causes you all that uncertainty, anxiety. You don't know when they're going to show back up. You know, you work really hard. They show up at the 11th hour and then they turn into a micromanager. They kind of panic you know, that they haven't been in control. So they, they try to just rush in, you know, control you and then they disappear again. And sometimes they never even check in on the work that they just controlled you over for those last kind of moments right before a big event. Um, and then we have the last type of difficult boss who's the gaslighter. This person's very terrifying to work mm -hmm. with. They, they don't just lie at work, but they actually cut you off socially. They isolate you from other colleagues, from other managers, from anyone else in the organization. And they do it because they need to create an alternative reality that you're a part of. Either they're trying to hide something or cover something up, or nobody likes them at work and they don't have anyone on their team that will work with them. And so they kind of need to keep you close. And so they lie with this intent of a deceiving on a very big scale. And often it's very late in the game when you realize that this is going on because the way they draw you in is through flattery by making you feel special. And, um, you know, the, the kind of tragedy of working with a gaslighter is you often kind of do things that are maybe immoral or against the rules, but you're not really realizing it's happening it's too, until it's way too late. Um, and so they can actually kind of kill the most morale at work out of all the types. So I think, I mean, those, uh, when I went through them, I could, I had so many people's names in my head as I went through each one. Now the gaslighter one, and you know, I thought you gave some great tips in the book. I thought the gaslighter is so crazy, right? It's, it's kind of a, as you said, a bit of a dangerous one. Yeah. Um, and in the book, I saw a lot about, you said they often use we instead of I and broad generalizations, mm -hmm. which I've certainly seen myself. I remember one person, I won't give a name, called me one day. I had recently taken on a team team. And uh, they said to me, the wheels, everyone is saying the wheels have fallen off. And I remember going, well, what wheels? The wheels of the car, the bike, the Aston <laughs> cart, what wheels exactly? Um, because, you know, I, I, I'd come from an organization where it was very fact-based and I moved to this organization that had these big, broad statements. And I, I just found it really difficult. When I read in your book, that people, that these gaslighters do use these, everyone is saying, and statements like the wheels have fallen off. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. So the gaslighters, and I think the key thing that you also mentioned in the book is they make their victims question their self-worth as well. Yeah. I felt terrible when that person rang me up and said that. I thought, are they saying I have made the wheels fall off? But I don't, that one scared me. Yeah, they're, they're really terrifying. I think most of the jerks, I actually spend a lot of time in the book talking about why they do what they do and, you know, what we, what happens at work to kind of create fertile ground for these people. But the gaslighter, not so much. But the good news is with them, you're right. They do have red mm -hmm. flags. Um, you know, speaking in vague platitudes or saying things like everybody says that, um, you know, things that are impossible to fact check because they're not specific enough, right? So if you push them on those things, they rarely actually can tell you who everybody is or what wheels you're talking about, right? They, they speak in metaphors, but never specifics. Yeah. Um, and I think I've dealt with a lot of these folks. The other thing they love to do is keep everything on the phone or in person. They don't like documenting yeah. things. They don't want a paper trail. So if you were to write this person back and say, okay, in our meeting, you said the wheels are falling off, yes. you know, they would probably distance from you because the minute that there's record keeping, it scares them. They'll move on to an easier victim when that happens.
I could not agree more, Tessa. I love, uh, I'm um, probably a lot of people that worked with me know I'm the king of a file note. Um, I love keeping a note on things, particularly if I sense someone is, is kind of a gaslighter. You've got to have your facts and figures. And yeah, as you said, writing an email back going, this is what I got from this meeting. You suddenly don't hear any more from them. And I think it is a tactic to use with those people. So when I saw that in your book, I thought, wow, that is, that is, she's stolen my idea, but uh, you probably came up with it in a much um, more <laughs> scientific way than I did. <laughs> I also loved in the book, I mean, I have to say, I, I was out walking here in Sydney and um, I have the book in, in both forms, the audio as well. And I was listening to it uh, walking and the kiss up kicked down. And I have to say that that chapter, I was bursting laughing. Be- not th- I, I know these are jerks <laughs> and I shouldn't be laughing, but it was just the way that you wrote it and the, no, the guy in the shoe shop and <laughs> everything. And it, it just, it killed me, right? Because there are kiss up, kick downers everywhere, right? They kiss up to the boss. And, you know, and I think for me, in my experience in 20 years in corporate, what you often see is the kiss up, kick downer is, you know, the boss is in the meeting and that kiss up, kick downer is agreeing with the boss. And you, you may raise something, oh yeah, very good point, God. Yes, we could certainly do that, blah, blah, blah. Then the minute the boss leaves the room, it's back to the status quo of kick down. Um, and when I saw that in the book, yeah. I, I know it just it, it made me laugh so much. But, you know, how do people deal? Like, see, for me, I'm a I kind of don't mind them too much. I almost go, can't be putting up with this kiss up, kick downer. Um, but for, for people more junior, <laughs> yeah. I think it's difficult for those kind of people because they start to question themselves. Yeah, I mean, kiss up, kick downers like the other talented jerks we work with. They're great at picking their victims. Mm. They're not going to go to someone that can stand up for themselves. It will humiliate them publicly, tell them to back off. You know, they pick people who are isolated, who are new. Yeah. I worked in the shoe department and it was like a very masculine environment for retail. I was the only women, woman selling shoes at the time. And I remember just very much a bro culture. And I was, I was targeted, I think, in part because I was 19 years old when I started. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was a great victim for somebody like this. And so what I learned is that telling them to leave me alone doesn't work. In fact, they just get smarter about their behavior. Complaining to the boss doesn't work because I looked like a a whiner. Um, So what I had to do was actually form relationships with people at work that were outside Mm -hmm. my comfort zone. I couldn't just complain to my best friends about it. I actually had to find people who worked in other departments who had crossed paths with this person. And what I learned is that I clearly wasn't the only victim. They had been lots Mm -hmm. of other victims kind of spread throughout the retail store that I was in. And I had to connect with those folks and make it sound like a wider problem than just me. So once I could actually speak to my boss and say, look, I know I might be sounding petty to you. I know I'm jealous of Dave's numbers or whatever. You know, he's killing it during the anniversary sale. This is a real problem and here is why. And I, you know, I did speak to some other folks. Some of them are willing to talk to you. Some of them aren't. But here's what I think the more widespread problem issue is. They are much more kind of willing to just hear me out and then do something about it. And what it required them to do is just create rules that made it impossible for my kiss up kick downer to steal customers to, you know, only work during the hours when it was really good to sell and kind of bully people and say, those are my hours. What are you doing? Why'd you sign up for that time? You know, and retail, it's all about what hours you work. And so 
the boss can do small things like that that doesn't involve necessarily firing the person or even yelling them, but just create structure so that it's more difficult for them to kind of torture people. I love that as well. And in the book, you just give such great tips about, you know, have your facts, like have some details going into a meeting with your boss. And, and you know, because sometimes that is so important. I've had people come to me. I've been the boss and people come to me and they go, she's driving me crazy. She keeps doing this. And I go, just let's get to the details and I will certainly try to create the environment where that doesn't happen. And one other one I have to talk about is the micromanager. Oh my God. <laughs> because the micromanager, um, you know, I think they really kill people's energy, right? They, they're energy sappers. Um, yeah. and I did, I've worked for a few micromanagers. I worked for one and, uh, their boss asked me, why didn't I enjoy working with the person? And I, I frame, framed it up like this. They kill my entrepreneurial spirit. I literally have, and I'm an entrepreneurial person. So in a big corporate, I love like coming up with new ways of doing things. And the, a lot of people like that because they, they want you to do that. But if, if I work for a micromanager, that's dead because I'm like going, I'm just dealing with their stuff all day long. And yeah. And, and yeah. in the book, I just, I, I, when I saw that again, I thought, wow, this is exactly what I've seen. And in the past, um, I like where you said it's important to reflect on yourself and go, are you becoming the jerk? I certainly find that if I work for a micromanager, I almost become a micromanager. And then I go, my teams are now putting up with me being a micromanager. I, I, I had to share that with you because I'd love your thoughts on that. Because when, when the micromanager makes you the micromanager. Yeah, I, that's the one type of management that is mm -hmm. contagious. So one of the main reasons why we have micromanagers is because they're yes. being micromanaged. And that's no one ever learns how to be a manager. You don't get that training. And so you, you become what you are being trained in by your own manager. And it just gets kind of trickles down from one person to the other. There's also this thing about very conscientious people. If they're not getting really direct guidelines of exactly what they should be doing from day to day, week to week, what they do to actually feel productive is they oversee their old yeah. job in excruciating detail. And if you happen to hold that old job, you're screwed <laughs> <laughs> because they're going to like hang over you all day and say, well, yeah. when I had that role, I did it this way and it's going to make you crazy. They're like a bad smell. They're like a bad <laughs> smell that you just... You're like, is it inside me now? <laughs> like, I can't. <laughs> is it living in there? You know, you. I, I talked about a micromanager. I don't know if this actually made the book. It might have gotten cut. That that the the Matt, my friend, who dealt with one, he smelled like his manager at the end of the day because she had this, she had this perfume that was like, of course it was nauseating and too much because she was nauseating and too much, and it just hung on his clothes to the point where we would just sort of laugh at him about how he mm -hmm. smelled like his boss, but you know. <laughs> Oh my God, that's hilarious. I love that because in the book as well, you even say that if you were in a relationship like with someone like that was your partner or whatever, um, if, you know, you would leave them if they were driving you crazy. But if you're stuck with a micromanager, for example, you're like, what am I going to do? And I, I, when I saw that in the book, I thought, oh, that happens to so many people. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're turning off the light when they walk by, yeah. you're hiding from them. Yeah. I mean, it's awful. And the other thing is that when the advice I give about sort of how you talk to them, micromanagers are the most offensive types of managers because they are very anxious about their performance. They have 
really high performance anxiety coupled with conscientiousness. And the minute you criticize them, they go from zero to 10. And so that's why you have to kind of open with what you, I would like you to do more of that I actually enjoy. And then kind of back into the problem a little by focusing on how you're misaligned on some higher level issue, like goals that just feels less scary. You know, like no one really freaks out if they say, let's have a conversation about our goals. Okay. (laughs) That sounds pretty benign. Let's have a conversation about how you're smothering me immediately the defenses go up, you know, and no one wants to hear that. So you have to kind of perspective take, but it is a, it's a pain to, to deal with it. <laughs> and look, you know, we've only touched on three there and, and Tessa obviously touched on some more of them. There are some, there are tips and tricks for all of them in here and, and they're amazing. And, and, you know, even then, you know, as I, as I continue to think about the book and, I, you know, I've really, it really, um, I've been reflecting on the book a lot back to my own corporate life and going, you know, I, I kept coming back to culture and, you know, the culture of a company can feed the work jerk, right? It's, you know, and, and I saw this quote by Adam Grant recently. He said, in cultures of arrogance, people get rewarded for expressing certainty and conviction. The most confident speaker claims the most status, which I thought that is so on point because the culture can breed these people. It, it often comes from the top. And I've certainly seen that in different cultures I've worked in. But do you agree with that culture in companies has a big impact on the jerkery? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like most of us have some form of inner jerk inside of us that could potentially come out given the right situation. And you really have to learn those red flags, even at the interview stage of what to look out for, because there's just some fertile breeding grounds, cultures that are highly competitive, where the people at the top kiss up and kick down to get there. That's what they're going to value, whether they say it or not. That is implicitly what they care about. It's what they value. You know, companies where the bosses are pretty hands off, if teams seem to be doing fine on their own, you know, we just kind of let you do your own thing here. What they value is allowing free riders to happen and credit stealing to happen and neglectful bosses to happen because there's no system of checks and balances. They, they kind of push against this idea of rules. So any company that's like, ah, oh, don't tell me that we have to have rules here or procedures. I don't want to have to babysit each other. Those companies have those kinds of problems. And so you can kind of look out for these things. Absolutely. Culture can do it. Um, management can do it. And management that ignores problems can do it. Managers that don't meet with their direct reports that like hand off the meeting to somebody else. They, they inadvertently contribute to this, you know, not because they mean to, but just because they're not around to make sure it's not happening. So we assume no news is good news. And that's rarely actually the case when it comes to uh, the workplace. I couldn't agree more there. And I think like, you know, I've worked in companies where, and I'd love your thoughts on this, actually. I've worked in companies where they've had 360 degree reviews and which is essentially you're reviewed by your boss, your, the people below you, sideways, etc. And when I worked in that company um, that had that, I actually liked the 360 degree review. I think it avoided jerkery because you kind of knew that, you know, I remember like if you said something wrong in a meeting at this company I worked at, and I worked there for 10 years, it would probably be back to your boss within an hour. Yeah. And it would certainly be on your performance review. I then moved to a company that had no 360 degree reviews. And I felt that, wow, this is like the Wild West because <laughs> jerks can, can kind of get away with it here. And also what I found was, um, you know, it was very leader based, right? So the culture of different divisions or departments was based on who led the team. Whereas the company with the 360 degree review was a little bit more 
Well, the culture was kind of the same um, because of that 360-degree review. But I'd love your thoughts on that. Have you experienced anything around that? And that's just from my experience. I couldn't believe the difference in the two cultures of these two companies. Yeah, I I mean, I think so. What the research shows is 360 is neither good nor bad. It's it's what you do with it and how you use it. Mm. And the company that you worked with, what that feedback did was gave people voice. So it, it made people feel like regardless of their status, they had a say over what the culture looked like and they had there was a system accountability for people's behaviors and in some organizations we see that 360 does that and others we see that people are horrified of saying anything negative about people in power so they lie on their 360 feedback so if you have this kind of culture of honesty and it gives people a voice and there's a system of accountability that's kind of like this perfect situation there but it can go wrong if you don't have those pieces in place because people are just they, they, they just say nonsense on the review and they say nonsense at their exit interviews because they're afraid it's going to kind of get back to them. So you can't have the kind of place like the second place you work with just a lot of top down control where they have 360 feedback, but it's kind of BS, right? Everyone knows that like no one really can be honest about giving upward feedback there, but you still have to do it. It's just useless data. So it's all about kind of like the culture you build around that before you do those feedback forms. Personally, in my experience, I find leadership is very important to stamp out bad culture and, yeah. and, you know, and leadership programs I've built in companies. We very much focused on the leader level and really focus on telling those leaders, you know, you cast a big shadow. Yeah. Like we, we did a lot of work around the leadership shadow, the shadow you cast, the people you reward, the things you walk by. That has a huge impact on the culture. Yeah. And does, and when I read through your book, I thought, wow, there is so much in here that if the leader doesn't do a good job or try to at least, because the leader has a lot to do, jerkery can happen. Yeah. I think the other thing that leaders forget is there's a huge spotlight on them all the time, right? Everyone's kind of staring at them. I have examples of being in the elevator before and like accidentally giving someone a side eye that I didn't mean to. And four years later, them (laughs) saying, you hated me for four years. And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So there's a huge spotlight on leaders, but there's a huge spotlight on leaders interacting with other people. Right. So now that we're kind of coming back to the office, people watch me and they watch my nonverbal behavior when I'm talking to my boss or my colleague who's, you know, in trouble for being mean to me last week. So they get to see what our dynamic looks like. They can figure out the power structure. They can figure out sort of what that hierarchy at work looks like. Who's at the top? Who's got a pretty precarious position? They're about ready to lose all those power dynamics. The higher you go up in that ladder, the more people can stare at you and see them and sense them. And I think, you know, for leaders, they have to acknowledge it's not just how they behave with the person that's making the judgment. It's how they behave to, uh, around them, you know, in the most subtle ways. And it's often the, the more, the less formal interaction that matters the most. The high in the hallway, yeah. you know, the like, if you run into someone at dinner, how do you behave? Those kinds of things matter more than how you behave in the boardroom. A lot more, actually, because they're, they're less kind of formalized. I couldn't agree more. And I think even sometimes if if teams see that the leader is, say, for example, when I got that message, the wheels have fallen off. When the team saw me deal with that because that person was quite a senior person, I think they got a lot of like, wow, he's actually standing up for us. It's so true, Tessa, what you say there. They're watching everything. And as a leader, you really have to be mindful of that. Now, I know I have to ask as well, 
you know, if we're worried, so uh, there's so much in the book, right, about people being able to think about how to deal with that jerk. But one thing I really wanted to get at before we let you get back to your life in New York is what if people are worried about becoming a jerk themselves? What can they do <laughs> yeah. to, to avoid that? So first go to my website, TessaWestAuthor.com and take my quiz. <laughs> are you the jerk at work? Um, we all have a potential. So I think the first mistake people make is thinking that they just simply could never be the jerk. We all can be the jerk. And I think actually that the key is to identify what your weaknesses are and what brings those out. So for example, some people, when they're really anxious, they micromanage. It makes them feel more in control. Mm. Others neglect they free ride because they'd rather just shut down and go watch Netflix all day and not have to like deal with all this stuff. So kind of knowing what, what's the worst case version of you looks like and then what those triggers are. You often can't control the things that trigger it. You can't control how much anxiety you feel mm. or how much, how many shutdowns there are, or whatever is going on, but you can come up with alternative responses of what to do when you do experience those things. And sometimes they're really small. So with the micromanager, you might want to just write that 14th email. Instead, just go for a walk for 10 minutes and just tell yourself, I'm yeah. just going to, I'm going to do this. I know I want to do this, but it's bad. So I think you kind of have to learn those things. I think the other thing is don't expect anyone to ever tell you they're not. We don't give this mm -hmm. kind of feedback. Almost every person in the C-suite I've talked to has never been told once the ways in which they're jerks at work and they, they know it. I recently talked to someone who'd been denied a position of power four times in a row. And when he left his office, no one said goodbye and no one even emailed him. And he's like, they're horrible people. I'm like, I think you're the jerk at work here. I'm sorry to break it to you. But they seemed very happy to see you go. And it didn't occur to him <laughs> that there's wow. a lot of red flags. And I think we just don't have that kind of self-insight. I think... Most of us, when we are our jerks, we tend to actually be uh, over hands off. We tend to ignore problems. We don't dive into problems. We're not super conniving, but we just, we see stuff that's falling apart and we're like, ugh, I don't want anything to do with this. This mm -hmm. is exhausting. So that, I mean, I've, I've looked at about 400 people that have done my survey so far. And that is the, the majority of people don't say they're ideal coworkers. They actually say they're kind of disengaged. And they let a whole bunch of bad stuff happen that they just kind of step away from and ignore. So that is kind of where most people actually see themselves. That's kind of the predominant way of being a jerk. But it's okay if you're a jerk. I've been a jerk. I opened my book with a, a story of my own jerkery. You just got to like learn how to identify it and then develop those strategies. I agree. I mean, certainly I know I've been a jerk at times and, you know, you try to learn as you go along and, and that's all you can do. The, actually, the title of our podcast is better at work and I'm a big fan of betterness. I think, you know, just try to be better today than you were yesterday, which which is all we can ever do. Now, we finish every podcast with a question um, that we ask everyone. Can you recall the best advice, Tessa, you ever received that made you better at work? The best advice I got is ask for the ask for hard feedback when you want it the least. When you are feeling like the biggest failure, when everything you're doing is falling flat and the last thing you want is more negative feedback, that is the critical time point to make sure you get it. So often we're willing to ask for feedback when we're feeling pretty good about things. But the first time I got this piece of advice was after I had, I'm an academic, so I had like 15 grants rejected and I just didn't want to hear 
anything from anyone about why I wasn't getting grants. And that's, I forced myself to show all my failure to someone and to get feedback from them when I was at my absolute lowest. I knew it was going to hurt, but that was the best advice I got. And it sucked and it felt terrible, but it really actually helped me. Um, and so we're afraid of feedback when we're at the bottom, but that is, I think, when it's the most important time to get it. Oh, I love that. And I really appreciate you sharing that because, uh, you know, when you're in a vulnerable state like that, having things rejected, et cetera, to put yourself out there and ask for feedback. But it sounds like it's been, well, it's obviously been very helpful because look what you've got. And uh, an amazing book, um, writing for the Wall Street Journal and just so, so much more. Look, thank you so much, Tessa. I've really enjoyed our chat. Um, people can get more insights through your amazing book, Jerks at Work, Toxic co-workers and what to do about them. We'll also put in the show notes, the details on that quiz that you mentioned on your website so people can test whether they're a jerk as well. I better do that this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Tessa. It's been so much fun to talk to you and good luck with the book. Can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Ned, welcome back to Better at Work. How are you? I'm good, Kahal. Great to be here. I loved that interview. What did you think of Tessa? So good. I loved it, Kahal. And it sounded like you and Tessa had a lot of fun there and talking through jerks at work. What I love about her book and her approach is she does bring a bit of humor to it. But I also love the way she has categorized the seven archetypes of jerks at work, because I think it actually helps you a lot so that you can actually, when you're coming across someone like that, know what archetype they are. What I found really powerful was that pause and reflect first and mm. then leverage the framework in those seven archetypes to label it. And then with Tessa's help, you've got those ways that you can make a plan, a plan to overcome. And I think that's what I love about what Tessa's done. It just gives you a bit of a roadmap when, well, it's a bit like a sat nav, right? It's like, okay, I know now what I'm dealing with. I know where I need to go. And also, Kahal, what Tessa did when she was dealing with the bulldozer jerkery with that star sales performer in the shoe department, she built a coalition, built a fact base, and then took that to her manager for help. So it's not just me whinging and complaining about the bulldozer. This is a bigger challenge, and this is what's getting in the way of the broader team. When you're dealing with jerks, having even one person that you can talk to, to go, look, is this me? People have a lot of pride in their work. And, you know, if, if people are criticizing that or gaslighting you, it can have a really big impact on people. And it's a serious topic. Like, you know, that's why what Tessa has done really well is, is taken a serious topic, but used words like kiss up, kick down, or I just think it's very funny, but it does take a little bit of pressure out of the system. You know, even the last week or so since I interviewed Tessa, some people, you know, you know, in it, I get calls a lot with people asking for some help on stuff and you do too. I've been using these, you know, like I've gone, I think you're dealing with a gaslighter there. And when you talk them through the example that, you know, they use broad statements, they say everyone is talking about you or everyone's saying this. It's really terrible for people to deal with that. But making them, as you said, labeling those so that people go, oh, I think I might be getting gaslit here actually takes uh, takes a bit of pressure off them. And also, Kahal, it, it's, it can put in that circuit breaker from 
you know, having then your next experience with that person being mm. a similar repeat. And it can quite quickly, and I, I found, you know, your confidence starts to go. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, you're not at your best with that next interaction with that person because you sort of feel on the back foot and and it's probably me. And, yes. And then it's become self-perpetuating that, you know, you either go and, respond in jerk mode yourself or you're reticent to share and be yourself and contribute because you don't want to trigger another bad encounter. You know, when I work for a micromanager, it really, I get quite stressed when I work for a micromanager because I take it that they're thinking I'm not doing a good job because for me, I'm quite hard on myself. So I'm always driving to get as much done as possible you know, every day moving the dial as much as possible. But if I work for a micromanager, I really, I am really a rabbit in the headlights. I'm like, oh my God. And it really impacts my confidence. Often it's completely the opposite and that the person micromanaging you is probably being micromanaged themselves. So they're thinking I need to reflect that type of management or they're not sure about their own role. And so they can direct all their energies to micromanagement rather than leading, setting the direction, supporting, enabling. It's, it's, it's easier to default into micromanagement. And then, of course, finally, Annette with Tessa, she talked about when we're becoming the jerk ourselves. I think that was an important one because that's very critical that we're thinking about that as well, because it's not always everyone else's fault. We might be, remember Tessa said, hey, you guess she had the guy who came to her and he, she goes, I think you're the jerk. You know, I think it's important for people to reflect and make sure they're not the jerk at work and blame it on other jerks. We're humans. Things are going to go wrong. All sorts of things are happening in, in people's lives and, and coming back to that empathy, understanding, compassion, and then, okay, let's learn and start again tomorrow. It's question time from our listeners. We've got a question from Emma and Emma's actually in Ireland and she um, actually very relevant. And I didn't make this up, I promise to our listeners. <laughs> she said that she's got uh, someone that is dealing with a very difficult manager. I don't think it's Emma herself. It might be someone that she's working with. They're dealing with a really difficult manager and uh, she wanted some advice from us on how to deal with a difficult manager. What are your thoughts on it? I think, Kahal, it's using some of the tools from jerks at work so that pausing and reflecting after those interactions that have been difficult and then working to label it. What What is that type of behavior that is really challenging? And then once you've got some words around it, is it micromanagement? What's happening for that difficult manager, what's going on there, and then working on that plan to overcome. The first attempts might not work. Go again, reflecting on the next interaction. I have seen a lot of people who've dealt with difficult managers and it really can impact their whole life. Even just asking that question, are you okay? Do you need to talk to someone? If that person's in that situation, 
then I think they need to get some real professional advice. If it's at the other end of the scale where they're dealing with someone difficult who doesn't approve their holidays or is asking them to stay late every night, then I think it's a slightly different scenario. And that's where I'd be saying, Emma, what you want to do is help that person to articulate the challenge so that they can say it in a brain friendly way to their manager. And look, the other side of it is some people are difficult and sometimes you've got to move on. You've got to leave an organization. You've got to go, this isn't the right environment for me and I've got to move on somewhere else. So we hope that helped. We will put uh, Annette's and my suggestions up on our website and it will be in the Better Bits, which is our newsletter. So you'll be able to check it out there as well. Thank you so much, Annette. That is it for this week's Let's Take It Offline. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to get in touch with us, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Annette, can't wait to see you next time. Thanks, Cahal. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.